Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and don't worry your pretty little head, I brought something special. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and don't hate me for my pretty eyes and perfect hair. Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of offense-defense balance and global workspace theory. Today, we'll be talking about episode two of season six of The Expanse, The Azure Dragon. In the next few weeks, we'll be talking about season six of The Expanse. Expanse, expanse, expanse. That's what this podcast used to be. That's what this podcast is. That is what it, well, I guess we won't, will be, The Expanse. And what are we going to do? What are we going to do when there's no more Expanse? We do have many plans, Anna. I mean, oh. we need to codify them somewhat, but we, we've got some, some ideas for how 2022 is going to go, I'm pretty sure. You know, we discussed this a little bit on the Discord, mm. and I said I'd put up a Google doc so people could start suggesting things. Okay. This is good to know. And so I think I will do that. Okay. But, you know, speaking of our Discord, Dan, what is the Discord? Like, what what the fuck am I talking about? So here's the Discord for you listeners. First, you have to go to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash space the nation. Then... You decide to become a patron for as little as $3 a month. And once you do that, oh my God, like the world is your oyster. The galaxy, the it's solar like system is It's like you've entered the slow zone. Basically, yes. And the, the gates, yes. the ring gates are all around you. So many different. Different places to enter. Exactly. Behind um, one gate, there's swag. Behind another gate, there's early access to podcasts. And behind yet another gate, Dan, there's access to the Discord. As well and as, then, oh, there's another one. There's another one, Anna. You get, oh my God. You get access to our monthly AMAs, which we normally do on the first Saturday of every month. It's so exciting to find out about all these benefits of our sort of uh, the podcast's very own slow zone ring gate <laughs> thing Yes. of the mind. <laughs> the slow zone of the mind is something <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about for a long time. <laughs> It's a slow zone of the mind. And also, we're collecting patrons. We are looking to get to 250. We will have another special patrons-only episode like we did at 100 once we get to 250. And Dan, there's another way people can support us even if they don't become patrons. And what is that? They can like us. They can rate and review us. They can tell their friends about us. All of these things are good. And just generally send the word out to all of the ring gates about Space the Nation. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Get a repeater on your side of the gate. Exactly. And actually, people can tweet at us, too. I am Anna Marie Cox. He is at Dan Dresner. And the Patreon page, I think we gave the address. We did. It is patreon.com slash space the nation. Dan, let's get on with it. Okay, just to be clear, we are going back to our normal expanse method of doing the plot recaps, which means we're hopscotching from location to location. This is not necessarily how each episode goes, but all of these things happen in the episode. But in this case, we're going to start with the first thing that we see uh, on the Azure Dragon. We go to Laconia, in which Kara plays with toys. So, the girl in the previous episode uh, on Laconia is named Kara. And now she's gone and made a baby dragon sick by giving it some protein bar. Like all children her age would, she runs back to her home with the baby dragon and gets a lesson about mortality and why we don't feed baby dragons on strange planets, as her mom explains that this would be poisonous to Laconia's indigenous life. Kara wants to help the other baby dragons get back into the nest that they have fallen down from, but strange things are afoot in Laconia, as there's some sort of all-colony meeting and Kara's parents aren't too happy about it. 
Kara disobeys her parents and steals a drone to pick up the baby dragons, but it doesn't really work out. She sort of gets one up there, and then the drone breaks. She tries to bury the dead baby dragon, but the weird dog that we saw in the previous episode grabs it while she's not looking. Anna, I will credit The Expanse in that I frankly thought there was a 1 in 5 chance that the strange dog was not going to take the baby dragon, but instead was going to eat Kara. Which strikes me as just about the right level of menace given an ordinary Expanse episode. And also, again, The Expanse is very good at showing how good intentions can lead to bad outcomes, yes? I think that's the plot of the entire, like, series. Books 1 through 9, seasons 1 through 6. <laughs> it's all about good intentions and bad outcomes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Speaking of good intentions and bad outcomes, though, I am very sad that we don't see a dog dog in this episode. Muskrat. I am a stan for Muskrat, who is a character in the books. Well, it's a dog in the books, but I count a dog as a character. And just to remind our our listeners, Anna has read all the books. I have read none of them. So I'm a a little bit salty Mm -hmm. about the missing Muskrat, but... I'm interested in seeing where this goes as a reader of the books because they've taken they've they've done some slice and dice mm-hmm. with characters and plot lines here. So this is one of the things that people should know about the expanse if they're book readers or TV watchers, if you're neither, if you're wondering like if you should read the books. They are not the same exactly. Mm-hmm. Like huge parts of them arcs and characters and whatnot are, but you will still be surprised if you've watched the TV series and you read the books you will get a different experience. I think it's very worthwhile to do both. I'm strongly suggesting to Dan that he tackle the books after we finish it. Right. I have to say, my philosophical approach generally has been to watch the show before I read the books. Just in the sense of I usually get disappointed if I read the books first and then see the pro- you know, the, the show because mm-hmm. it's a question of expectations. Also, my right. memory is now such that if I think of... I suspect that when I start reading the Expanse series... There is so much plot over these six seasons that I will be happy to reread the book and completely forget about what the differences were between the show and the book. Speaking of so much plot. Yes. yes. <laughs> I just want to note mm-hmm. that doing this season as six episodes, I don't know. You've given some thought to the whether or not they're going to land to this. Yes. And they're stuffing 100 pounds of plot into a six-episode season, and I don't know if it will all fit gracefully. So, and, uh, yeah, I wrote a column. Um, Night scenes of plot spanks. <laughs> I love the idea of plot spanks. That's that's a good way. That There needs to be that. Yeah, I wrote a column in the Washington Post, which by the time our listeners hear this will have been last week, in which I, I have to say... The Expanse showrunners are laughing in the face of danger because, of course, the parallels between The Expanse and Game of Thrones are pretty strong. And I mean that in a complimentary way up until now. But uh, as listeners are probably familiar, the last season of Game of Thrones was also six episodes. (laughs) Um, And that season was not reviewed as well, I think it's safe to say. And so we are hopeful that that, uh, The Expanse just laughs in the face of danger and just manages to stick the landing. I think it'll be okay, but I'm wary. Mm-hmm. The That is the mood that I'm in. I'm wary. Speaking of wariness, mm-hmm. 
Dan, let's move on. Yes, let's go to the Rossi, where Bobby comes to save the day. So the Rossi is resupplied by a UNN ship that is happy that everyone is on the same team now, and mission specialist Bobby hops along. She explains Avasarala's new plan. Rather than destroy the Azura Dragon, they're going to try to board it to gain intel and boost morale. The Rossi crew is still super glum, and guess what? This much riskier assignment does not make them any happier. So, the Rossi does creep up on the Azure Dragon, but they're detected, and whoa, space chase, which is actually pretty cool. Bobby literally leaps into space from the Rossi onto the Azure Dragon, manages to grab onto the hull, and kills their drive. Naomi is supposed to follow, but she freezes, so Peaches steps in and saves Bobby. Naomi helps her disable the Azure Dragon over the comms. They successfully board the ship, retrieve the data, and kill the crew, but not before the Azure Dragon sends a signal to Marco about being boarded. Holden dresses down Clarissa for improvising during their attack, but she kind of likes it because it's the first time Holden talks about her as part of the crew. Anna, I have many questions. First of all, (laughs) it sure seems like Naomi is experiencing some PTSD. Do you think that that might pop up again? Also, do you think she'll warm up to Clarissa or Peaches now? Because Peaches really did save her bacon during the attack, and then it was clear Naomi actually was talking to her in a productive way, which was not the case in the first episode. But most importantly, Anna, what is the official Space the Nation policy about Nadine Nicole's character? Are we calling her Peaches? Are we calling her Clarissa? What should we do? We're calling her Clarissa, Dan. Okay. I believe that Amos is the only person allowed to give women diminutive nicknames. <laughs> but others can I, use I, that, those dimin- I mean, I'm, you're not happy about that? See, not so, I don't, I don't know. It's just sort of different coming from Amos, uh-huh. you know? Like, he's the only one who calls Avasarala Chrissy, Chrissy. That's true, yeah. Right? Also, in the books, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure he's the only one that calls Clarissa Peaches. Well, I did. So. When Holden says Peaches over the comm, even Clarissa seems like, Holden? What? Like, are you calling Yeah, I yeah. think they were using it as a marker of like, oh, she really is like becoming a part of the team. Right. You know, mm-hmm. um, which is what nicknames usually signify. But I think in the book, it's funny. Like, I've always seen Amos and his nicknames for women as... And they're always diminutive, by the way. <laughs> like he has um there's another character in the in the later books, a girl he calls Tiny. Ah. Like literally diminutive. Okay. But I think Amos has an you know interesting relationship with femininity. Mm-hmm. Um we've discussed his past. And I think it's sort of he has a different relationship with these women, mm-hmm. right? And it's a different structure uh, in which he calls them those names. I just feel uncomfortable talking you know, talking about women that way. Sorry. No, no. That, don't, <laughs> don't apologize. I literally asked you the question, Anna, because it was not... You did literally ask me I, ask I literally asked you a question. And I, yeah. I, to be fair, like it's not something I would normally have said Clarissa, but the fact that they keep... Everyone is now calling her Peaches is interesting, so I guess. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that maybe I've given this more thought than the showrunners have, <laughs> but I think they're using it as, a, as a, again, a sign that Clarissa has joined the crew, which mm-hmm. is great. Yes. I'm glad that she's joined the crew. As far as Naomi's PTSD, doesn't exist in the book. I mean, she has PTSD in the book, mm-hmm. but it's mainly from her abusive relationship with Marco. Which, and also which would make sense, the, yes. And also the fact that she was responsible for all these deaths mm-hmm. um, by unknowingly creating a bomb for Marco to use. Right. She doesn't suffer from PTSD about her suitless spacewalk. And I have to say, like, she's a belter. I mean, I would get PTSD from a suitless spacewalk for sure. <laughs> 
I don't know. I would die from a suitless spacewalk, <laughs> just to yeah. be clear. I don't doubt the Expanse showrunners thought about the science of this. I don't doubt maybe someone could be survived. Yeah. But just to be clear, I would die. Yeah. But you know what? Like, it is a fucking wild experience. And also, I think the more traumatic experience was her time on the ship. When With she Marco so- and Philip. No, no, no. Oh, no. She was on that ship by herself so desperately oh. after the spacewalk, so desperately trying to get help uh-huh. and running out of oxygen right. and having to do, having to like do that same bit of business over and over and over and again. And dealing with hypoxia again and again and again. Yeah. 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 I, I, I mean, I think maybe, and maybe that's actually what she's reacting to because again, that to me, I think would be pretty. Would mark yeah, it pretty, I, pretty deep. I would say in the episode, it's clear that Naomi seems to be suffering from PTSD. It's not as clear what she's suffering from PTSD from. I mean, like, there mm. there's some very quick shots, and I my gut instinct well, was I it was a spacewalk. Spacewalk because but, like it's jumping out of the ship. Right. It would be. It would make the most logical sense. But like yeah. it's it literally later in the episode, Naomi says, "We will talk about this later. We're not going to talk about this yeah. now. Right, so right, 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 we're going right, to find right, out." Right. Yeah. As far as like Holden's speech to Clarissa, you tell me, Dan. I thought it was a little unwarranted. Holden being a hard ass about mission discipline. <laughs> Holden. Holden is a by the book captain. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, he went, but he went seat of his pants like five minutes before. Right. Right. Like he decided to change the mission himself all by himself, like a little earlier in in the show. So well, he didn't decide to change it. Once the Azor Dragon was detected, you know. Remember, he wants to to call it off. And what was it? No, he's going to go shoot it. Like that was his idea. Was like after the Azor Dragon detects them, he's like, I'm gonna I'm gonna railgun those bastards. Right, but that was the you know yes, that was which is which is improvising. Yeah, that's true. That's improvising. That's true. But I think that I, is improvising. It is improvising, but also he he thought what was interesting about that sequence is that he clearly thought he was in command. Bobby says, "No, I have operational command," which raises all kinds of interesting questions about whether or not independent, you know, contractors actually have to deal. with... I have questions. Oh yeah, we're gonna have to I talk have about so this. So many questions. Yes, yes. I guess we'll save that for the IR. But I will section. say this: Holden clearly defers to Bobby, and so in the end, winds up there's right. the space chase. And so maybe actually his masculinity was threatened, and that's why he go bitches. He goes to bitch <laughs> out Clarissa because he really needs to assert some kind of authority. Possibly. I mean. In the books and pretty much in the in the TV series, he's a pretty woke dude. Mm-hmm. But, you know, woke dudes can get their feelings hurt, too. See, I actually think... So here's my interpretation of all this, which is at, at, is that Holden actually knew exactly what he was doing when he dressed down Clarissa. Ah. He's so woke okay. that he knew that by dressing down Clarissa, he was also making her part of the crew. And I would say the tell on this one is that Holden had the conversation in front of Amos. Because if he was really legitimately pissed at Clarissa and really, like, you know, trying to get, uh, like, genuinely angry as opposed to sending a message, he would have waited until Amos wasn't there. Or he would have, like, chosen a different time. Okay. Isn't it true that one of the few funny beats in this episode, though, is when he goes in to say, can we talk Mm -hmm. to Clarissa? And Amos is like, yeah, go ahead. Yes, yes, that was, yes. (laughs) I, I did like that. That was there. Were, there were a couple of you know. In contrast to the first episode, which had almost no nothing humorous, this episode thankfully had a few lighter moments. That was one of them. And even like when Amos yeah. was getting pissed off about not getting paid, that was also funny, you know, which was, was nice to see. So, uh, you know, it, maybe they're starting to get their groove on this season. Is the way I would put it. Dan, I'm I'm gonna skip ahead a little bit. I want to ask you about an IR thing. I think it's an IR thing. Yeah. It's it's a military thing, which right. is IR, I guess. Mm-hmm. Did the 
Azure Dragon mission makes sense to you? I struggled with it a little. I mean, tactically, for sure, right? Mm-hmm. But the whole we're doing this for morale with a mercenary force? There are multiple <laughs> levels on which the morale are. So, so let's be clear. From a military perspective, did I think it made sense that they would want to capture the Azura Dragon? Of course, and yes, get the yes, intel? Yes. 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 So, like, no, no, compo- I, I totally understand why Avasarala would want to do that. I totally yep. understand why they would have sent Bobby. That's fine. The morale line makes no goddamn sense whatsoever. Yes. Thank you. I, yes. I'm just going to, I will specify that. And it makes no sense for a couple of reasons. The first is why, you know, the idea that, that, Holden suggests that the reason that they're being asked to do this as opposed to the Marines is that if things go south, somehow, you know, it's a a mercenary crew, even though they're not mercenaries, but whatever. And maybe there's some truth to that. More on that later. Right. But but th- <laughs> this is the, the, the whopper of the line is not is not Bobby. It's Holden. Holden at one point says, Avasarala has lost strike teams before. And this would, you know not be good politically. Not look as bad as losing Marines. Right. So here's right. the thing. First of all, it is correct that Avasarala's lost strike teams. We saw that, you know, I believe in season five. However, there is a difference between losing a strike team when you're trying to capture Marco Anaris before and after the Earth has been destroyed. Mm-hmm. So to put it gently... Yes, it was politically problematic when Avasarala lost the strike team before 20 asteroids hit Earth. And continue to hit them. And continue to bombard them. Now, it's not going to matter. They could just suppress the the information. I mean, they talk about this later in terms of, like, the War Information Act or whatever the hell it is. Or or don't. I mean, like, people want to hear you're fighting. See, that's where the, again, mercenary in quotes here. I think as a citizen of Earth, mm-hmm. if you told me, even if the mission was successful, we sent a bunch of mercenaries to on, capture yeah. info. Now, again, <laughs> like, this is where I will say that, like, they're not mercenaries. That's the other thing. Amos no, is, they're not. I will t- talk about it later. Yeah, talk yeah. about it later. But, like, you told me, like, a bunch of Blackwater guys got Saddam. <laughs> like, I mean... <laughs> I, I just don't think it'd have the same effect. There would effect. be some ambivalence, yes. yes. <laughs> Where if you tell me, you know, SEAL you know, seal Team 6, like, smoked Osama, like, you know, I'm going to go out and wave some flags. You know what? Right? I might cast you in the movie, you know, like, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. You, you and Jessica Chastain, sure. there's a similarity there. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that was the thing that bothered me. It was like, it's not much of a morale booster if, like, you're somehow, like, tacitly admitting you didn't want to send like the Marines. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I, there is one slightly different way I would put it, although this doesn't add up either, which is the other way you could have thought about it in, in terms of morale is that actually this is the other part that doesn't make any sense. As a morale booster, you would want to announce that you've destroyed the Azure Dragon and you won't have to worry about rocks hitting Earth anymore. And you've captured the rock. Like right, you've right. destroyed the Azure Dragon. Yeah. Like, Here's no the more problem rocks. with that. If, on the other hand, you want to use the intel, you can't do that. <laughs> or so, what happens is what happens. Right. So there is one way in which this might have been thought of as a morale booster, although even here it doesn't make any sense, which is it could have been a morale booster for within the UN, N, as it were, that it's literally the troops that need the morale booster. And so knowing that they've got some intel and can actually launch an attack. Well, I don't know. I think the power of telling the people on Earth no more rocks are coming. Oh, it's pretty huge. Is like... <laughs> 
It's pretty huge. And also, by the way, that's contradicted later in the episode because it's clear the UN guys aren't happy that Avasarala, you know, yeah, that's, Let, I mean, the, mm, yeah. we've already established I'm a little more skeptical about this season than you. <laughs> but I find the IR to be, I, for me, IR unexpert, mm-hmm. I find it a little more, like, problematic. Well, no, you're not wrong, season. as I said. Like, the, the, the morale line made no sense, and that, that part was not correct. All right, Dan, uh, let's, let's, um, let's go talk about the enemy. <laughs> you're right. You know, what's happening on series during all of this? And for those who like the movie 12 Angry Men, all I kept thinking watching the sequence was lousy, rotten, belter kids. So Marco springs Philip from a series holding cell where he's been locked up for killing his friend Yoan, saying it's a free Navy issue and therefore Marco will discipline him. Marco then reads Philip the riot act about how kids these days in the belt are spoiled. And it wasn't like that back in Palace Station back in the day. Yeah. All right. When they mined water uphill both ways. They got back on the line, Anna. All right. <laughs> Didn't matter what they did the night before. They were back on the line. All right. Yeah. Still, Marco doesn't punish him to preserve the fiction that Yoan struck uh, Philip first rather than vice versa. Rosenfeld, who again is Marco's second in command, tells Marco that he needs to toughen up Philip. And Marco is not used to this kind of straight talk, but also doesn't seem to reject the idea. Philip tries to record a message to send to Yoan's family, uh, along with some sort of tribute about the fact that he's been killed. On the first pass of recording a message, it seems like he wants to fess up about what actually happened, but on the second attempt, he manages to record it without any hint of what really happened. Marco and Rosenfeld, uh, to close the episode, see that the Azure Dragon has been captured. They aren't terribly disappointed, actually, as it means that the inner navies are likely coming out to the belt to attack Ceres, and... Marco is particularly looking forward to battle. Anna, it seems like Philip is learning how to compartmentalize, just like his dad, which sure seems super scary, yes? This um, plotline could be entitled How to Raise a Sociopath, I think. <laughs> I mean, poor Philip, right? Yeah. But Marco seems intent on doing just that, in fact. Uh, which is to say molding him in his own image, because Marco is a sociopath. Yeah. And there was a lot I liked about this segment of the show that does not include the man bun. We both, I think, are in agreement <laughs> we, we both, on the man bun. No ap- apologies. Partially, yeah. Keon Alexander's got great hair. Why Why hold it in the man bun is all I'm saying. Why hold it in the man bun? His face looks amazing. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, I do appreciate being able to see, like, very clearly his cheekbones. Yeah. Also, I'm on the fence about how I feel about his outfit. I mean, part <laughs> of me thinks it's ludicrous. But the other part of me is like, yeah, that is what he would wear. That is totally is what he would wear. It is character consistent. <laughs> I think it's safe to say. Yes. But you know, my, I think the, the secret star mm-hmm. of this arc is Rosenfeld. Played by Kathleen Robertson. She's really interesting and kind of creepy. Mm-hmm. You know? She seems almost too on the ball somehow. She seems like, competent, which is, you know, not... In- suspicious. No. Yes. <laughs> I can't trust competent yes, people. Exactly. But you're, But she does, and more competent than Marco. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, she has no illusions. Uh, her suggestion that they, you know, drop Philip in a recycling bin or whatever. <laughs> I guess not a bin. Recycler? Recycler, Recycler I Recycler? think it was, yeah. Recycler. Yeah. Is actually, I think, a pretty good one. Yeah. I mean, really, he should be tried for murder. But there should be some consequences besides psychological torture, right. which is based, which is the only thing he's getting now. Mm-hmm. But I can't shake the idea that she's up to something, hmm. you know, like, I don't know. I just think it's weird to have a really like, I think 
second in commands that are that are that competent just i mean maybe that says more about me than anything else that i don't trust that <laughs> it's an interesting question so you don't like rikers in other words like you know you uh, you know or is riker not competent enough i guess is the, the well just i mean maybe it's just like i just there's something about her mm-hmm. and i don't i mean this probably will not play out but that she seems to see well you know why because Riker loves Picard mm-hmm. there's no that that he's completely loyal right like there's something about the way she's treating Marco it's a little condescending almost yeah no I think you're right about that I mean and, and also I, it's clear that Marco this is slightly weird I, I maybe I, I don't know if I want to go here but like it's possible Marco's also attracted to her because oh yeah no no I almost I, I mean I have that I had that same thing yeah. like when she said he says like most people are afraid of right me. exactly and uh he seems to get turned on by the fact that she might not be right. and by the way I did I, think, I did love her response to that. I was like is this your way of saying thank you or something you know you're welcome yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. that was yeah. great although I think Marco isn't genuinely turned on by women who aren't afraid of him I think like, <laughs> he thinks he might be but when uh, push comes to shove I'm not sure if it would really work out anyway I am interested in where this goes I feel like Marco isn't doing a lot right now mm-hmm. so yeah. well I do seeing him in action will be exciting right I was gonna say one of the things that I I liked about the end about the sequence is that it's come to an end which is to say that you know it seems clear that the next episode there is going probably to be some big space battle or at least a preparing for a big space battle and so you know marco is is clearly a character who is more interesting when he's in action as it were and finally he gets to be in his element again because clearly he's not a good administrator (laughs) Although, again, like, there's something, like, really cheesy and Trumpy about the way that he kind of is, like, cockwalking around, like, series, <laughs> like, in his stupid fake uniform, you know, <laughs> like, but just, Anna, like, you and I giving speeches to, like, two or three people. How do I, so, <laughs> so, in other words, oh, God, I just realized what he is then. He's a tenured academic. <laughs> <laughs> walking around someone who's full of himself speeches to two or three people someone who's given lectures <laughs> and talks you know to places where like you know like he's like basically like a big shot academic at an academic conference where like you know yeah. literally twos and threes of people can't wait to talk to him so what you're saying is we should shoot all those guys into space <laughs> <laughs> no no tenured <laughs> academics are a value or a valuable strategic resource valuable know. natural resource <laughs> for the fluids they contain <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's definitely the end of the year, Anna. We're getting bloopy. <laughs> okay. All right, Dan. Let's let's go visit the Tynan. Let's go visit the Tynan. And you know, there's always time for a tour, Anna. So, Drummer and the Tynan meet up with Golden Bow faction member Liam Walker to transport Michio somewhere safe. Because if you remember, Michio can't keep... Also, it is really... Sorry. Yeah. It, is, it is literally, like, somewhere. Yeah. Like, this is not it's a very elegantly vague. tied up plot line. Well, I think she was supposed to go to Ganymede. <laughs> I think they do say... Yeah, but me. it's sort of like, oh, we'll, we'll take her. We'll, yeah. Okay. You know, there's like a sort of, like, hand wavy. Eh, all right. We'll take her. Walker makes it clear that he's not thrilled with Marco, even though he's pledged allegiance to the Free Navy and has been skimming supplies. He says that he initially sided with Marco because Marco hurt the inners, but now he has his doubts. Walker tells Drummer they've been moving cargo from Ganymede and Ceres to supply depots all around the belt. Drummer is intrigued and asks Walker for help in contacting the Golden Bow ships who didn't stay loyal to Marco in order to, you know, act like belters and raid the depots. Anna, 
I resent that The Expanse is making me take Marco's side on consecutive episodes, but I do find it hard to believe, as Leon says in the episode, that he would be sexually intimidated by Walker. <laughs> More importantly, do you believe he actually is alienated from Marco, or is this a setup? Oh, I think whether or not Marco is sexually intimidated by him is much more important than <laughs> his alliances are. But Dan, I assumed that was one of, you know, the thus far not many jokes in this season. It was I legitimately funny. Yes, I laughed out loud I, too. I laughed out loud both times I watched it. <laughs> it is delivered incredibly. I mean, to me, it was just a great deadpan delivery yeah. by this guy who looks like Buster Poindexter, I think you said Tom. I Waits, said Tom Waits. I think it looks more he's like he's like Tom a Waits. former punk rocker in space. Yeah, for sure. He's got the punk rock hair. Uh, is the key thing? Yeah. Yeah, I love that guy. I want to see more <laughs> of him. I really do. Uh, I think he's hilarious. He's also the one who talks about Marco's pretty eyes and perfect hair. <laughs> yes. So I'm hoping we see more of him. Uh, you know, how many different places do we go in this episode? Like, I'm just it can't. It, it's five. Out. We're like there were in five, five different six. episodes. Yeah. Right. yeah. Remember when there were three? Yeah. <laughs> I sometimes wonder if we're doing a little too much here. And also, it's it's five, and we're there's no Mars. Yes. As, a, as is a pet peeve of ours, yes. there's no Mars. I'm, I'm a little annoyed about that. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. So this, I mean, I know the, I've, I have faith. I really do have faith. Mm-hmm. But I feel a little bit like this is like someone dropped, you know, chaff, you know, onto the barn floor and it's all like flown around and then someone's going to have to like sweep it all together. Okay. So, so again, I, so far I think I've liked this season a little better than you. And so here's the metaphor I would use. It's not chaff on the floor. It's chess pieces being put into motion. And, and that takes a little bit of time. More agency. Yeah. It takes a little bit of time and, you know, we, we haven't gotten to, we're about to start the middle game and then we're going to get to end game. So, you know, I do. We're in the middle game now. (laughs) No one ever says that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the Queen's Gambit thing can say, I suppose they can pull that off, but no, you're right. That's fair. All right, let us finally move to uh, Zenobia, which is the UN ship uh, where Avasarala is located. UN officials are not happy with Avasarala's high-risk attempt to capture the Azure Dragon. Ace reporter Monica Stewart, and Anna, am I correct? Is this the first time we finally learn Monica's last name? No. No? Damn it. You're okay. incorrect. I'm incorrect? Okay. It doesn't matter because the important thing is Anna Hopkins plays her, and it's been nice to right. see her do it. Yes. Anyway, Monica asks Avasarala about it, but is rebuffed. After the successful assault of the Azure Dragon, Avasarala calls Miss Stewart into her chamber and asks her to produce a documentary about suffering Earthers to build sympathy in the belt. Avasarala needs Monica's credibility because she can't rely, apparently, on state organs of the media. Monica does not want to be a propaganda mouthpiece and agrees only after being assured that there will be no censorship by the UN. (laughs) Anna, I have so many questions. So, so many questions about this reporter subplot. I have some answers. Let's see if they match up. Okay, all right. So, you know, because we stay on Anna Hopkins... Let's get to the important reporter questions. Number one, and the most important thing as far as I'm concerned, who is paying Monica for the job? Okay. I, I That actually, as a sometimes working journalist myself, yeah. <laughs> this is an important idea. It seems like, like a rather is, important is, thing, yeah. 
Like, does it does the UN cut a check? How does that work? And you know? also, like, if Monica gets paid by the UN, then I do think there becomes some credibility issues. You know, I mean, it, yeah. It, or, or is it SpawnCon? Does it have a little hashtag on it <laughs> so that like those who are gramming the war can like know? Man, I, I have to assume cryptocurrency is even more fully developed at this point. So maybe that, that you know, that's the <laughs> angle. I don't know. Maybe get, she, she gets paid in NFTs. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out like how this works. Also, uh, I yeah. you know, like, do you want to have a quote for this kind of thing? Has, you know, like, you know, like would the government if the government ever came to you and said, we want you to do a documentary, would you say, fine, here's my price? <laughs> I mean, everyone has a price, right, Dan? Yes. But. What I want to point out is that reporters are generally much cheaper than that. You don't have to offer them money in order to get, like, puff pieces. I mean, puff pieces can be bought very, very inexpensively, (laughs) usually by just, like, an off-the-record, like, backgrounder or two, you know? Like, that is how it happens. Like, I hate to break this to people, but that is how it happens in the real world. Like, how do you get a piece about, like, just the senator's wife's charity organization, Mm -hmm. right? It isn't we're going to pay you to do this thing about the senator's wife's charity organization. It's the senator will talk to you about, you know, whatever, whatever. Uh, and he will or he'll be it won't, it's not even it's not even that it's it's, you know, the senator's wife has this really interesting charity. We think it'd be nice if people knew more about it. Mm-hmm. And the senator has been interested in talking to you about. XYZ that's been happening, you know, in trouble spot and A. I think he has some, yeah, in trouble spot A. And I think he has some, you know, behind the scenes uh, information that might clarify. Oh, know, I see. Okay. What's going on? That's interesting. We'd really like to build a relationship with you and your organization. Mm. That sounds, that's actually legitimately interesting. I was going to say that one other way that it could happen beyond straight cash is the junket, of course. Oh, uh, yes, junkets. Although, and she's on a junket, apparently. Like, just. Oh, I, this isn't. No, that's I, not a junket, to be fair. Like, being on board well, the, the ship is different. That That's an end bed, right? Like, that's slightly different. That's true. That's true. I also just had this idea, like, during wartime, what would a junket be? Yeah. Um, like, although embedding is also paying off uh, reporters. Mm. I mean, embedding is an explicit propaganda move that the, that the military has done for, you know. Right generations and you do generate sympathetic coverage when you have embedded reporters speaking of sympathetic coverage yes this is my biggest question okay is the expanse alleging that the biggest problem (laughs) in the not too distant future with mainstream media is that it's too focused on policy and data and not enough human interest. So Anna, I like to is, think is that Anna in the year the in the year twenty thirty five, the data analytics wars were fierce, and in the end, Nate Silver was declared king. And so you know all. So color- they're having trouble generating some soft stories about like the human interest. All human happening interest and in color Earth. stories disappear. <laughs> There's no more stories about the scrappy baseball player with the hustle. You know, none of that. It's all just saber metrics at this point. All just polling data. That's it. Like, I'm, I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's all. And as far as the war goes, there's no indication of who the casualties right. are. It's just numbers. There's no like pictures of children. Exactly. It's just there's you know no, like, numbers war-torn. of KIA, numbers of, of MIA. Yeah. That, you know, budgetary. Honestly, expenses. that was what I laughed at the hardest in this whole scene. Yeah. Was that wait? You're telling me that what she wants is human interest stories, and that's what she's gonna pay her for? Right. Like fucking like that's like. In the theoretical example of how you would buy off a reporter, like, 
you, the human interest piece is the piece that you're paying them with. Right. Right. And what you actually are tr- like what the journalist is actually interested in, what they're accepting the human interest piece as a as a payment for is something that's going to be more driven by like wonky stuff. Mm-hmm. The currency is human interest. Right. You know, not <laughs> it's not what you buy. That's what you pay for. That's what you pay with. Anna, have you ever been guilted into writing a story? Dan. Yes. Only by editors. Anna, <laughs> 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 so uh, this is a, has nothing to do with the expanse. I have to ask, what is the email like? What is the shortest email that has maximized the guilt you have felt? Can you think of something? A single question mark. Oh, that is good. Have you ever gotten one of those? No, I have not. That's I. I wow. That is, that would just kill me. That's true. That would just, that would be a dagger. Yeah. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. Wow. Yeah. Like in the subject line, yeah. no text to the email. Just a que- just subject line question mark. Yeah. No, that, that usually, and usually, I don't know about you, Dan, but usually I have something at that point. Right. But I just really don't want to send it because I think it's <laughs> shitty or it's not done or whatever. And the thing is, I've been doing this for like 30 years now, right? Wow. If we count like high school. Yeah. And I still haven't gotten through my thick head that editors will take anything for that first draft. <laughs> like anything. Anything. <laughs> That's all they want. They just you could start with once upon a time and they will be happy with it. You, they, you could start with like, I saw blank. Like I talked to whatever. Like you could, I'm sorry, I want to make a better joke, but it, you, again, it doesn't have to be a joke. It could be something like truly stupid and they just want to know you've thought about writing. <laughs> like, you could open it by saying two way. plus two actually equals five and they're like, thank God, at least that's a sentence, you know? Yeah, she's working on yeah. it, you know, because what editors live in fear of is that you'll just completely space, mm-hmm. right? right? Like you'll just completely like not turn in anything. The best editors can work with anything, too. Mm. Like, they want proof that you've started. And they want to start thinking about what they're going to have to do to make it work. So... I will say... I try to remember that. I will say, Anna, so the academic equivalent of this, you know, like, if you're trying to, like, produce a chapter for an edited volume or you've promised something for a conference or what have you, this is where maybe the Academy is, believe it or not, slightly laxer than, than journalism because... The frank, the norm is, is the expectation is academics blow past deadlines all the damn time. And this is where, you know, I, I think I've literally been grateful as I've gotten older because back in the day when you actually had to write something, you literally had to physically mail it to someone sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that meant like those, those were extra days that, that you couldn't write. Now, you know, you can just email it to them. But yeah, I've had I've had occasional moments where it's like I don't want to check my email because I'm deathly afraid of the person that i owe words to getting in touch with me yeah it's weird it's weird because you know we do this for a living right and we've both been doing it for a long time but there's this weird the psychology of i think creative output in general (laughs) there are some people that don't have this and this is obviously a a bit of a um, tangent but (laughs) i know there are some people that don't have the problem of what will my editor think or is this good enough but and i've met one <laughs> that's okay bj novak oh the actor from yeah. the office yeah yeah i did an interview with him for the new york times where he talked about his children's book mm-hmm. 
he has written a couple, but I can't remember which one we were talking about. But uh, and he talked about how like he wrote a rough draft and he showed it to everyone and he read it to kids and he was like, "What? What's? What do you like? What yeah. do you want? What? He basically like focused. He workshopped it. And I was like, it. Right. Yeah, and I'm like, that's a fat. I mean, I guess it's maybe because he's a comedian mm-hmm. and he could think about it that way. Mm-hmm. But like, I was like, I could not imagine taking like a rough draft of something like around. Oh, this is what. <laughs> like, so this might I. This is part and parcel of, of how academics work, which is, which is, you know, our conference papers very often are not very polished. Like, I'm working on something right now that'll be part right. of a larger book project. Like, Well, there's I, different between not polished mm-hmm. and, like, I don't know if this is any good or not. No, there have been times where I presented something where I'm like, oh, God, I don't know right. if I'm onto something or, or what have you. And... I, <sighs> Honestly, and you know, for the academics who are listening, you know, all 12 of you, you know, this is an important skill to have, actually, which is the willingness to present something that might not be good, but also recognizing that that's an opportunity to make it better. And that is the absolute way you have to look at it, because otherwise you are just setting yourself up for rejection after rejection. Yeah, and that's actually a really good approach to life. Hmm. And it's just one of the hardest things that I've ever had to learn. Hmm. And I'm still learning it, you know. See, Anna Hopkins, you got us to really deep places with your performance in this episode. So thank That's you. true. Yes. Uh, let's get even a, a deeper, okay. Dan. Anna? Is there IR in this episode? Anna, my implants can detect IR in every Expanse episode. <laughs> but I do get sleepy afterwards. <laughs> so, yes, I think there, there are sort of two IR elements that I, that I noticed in this episode that are particularly interesting. The first is what is often referred to as Weapons of the Week. So this is a classic book by James Scott, both of comparative politics and international relations. It was his study of a Malaysian village and the forms of, quote, everyday resistance, end quote, that peasants engage to resist hegemonic structures. Things like shirking or boycotts or sabotage or even outright theft. And it is not to be confused. Weapons of the Week is not to be confused with outright rebellion um, or organized, you know, fighting or union activity or what have you. As Scott pointed out, if resistance um, is out in the open, it is very rarely collective. And if it is collective, it is very rarely out in the open. And we see this for the first time dealing with the Free Navy. And this is your favorite character in this episode on a Liam Walker, where he just brags about the fact that he's skimming off Marco. And this is interesting to note because it does suggest that you're gonna that, that maybe Marco is not as well organized um, as and not as hegemonic perhaps as we previously thought because inevitably hegemony produces these sorts of, of resistance structures so that's kind of interesting. The second thing that's interesting is essentially the question about discursive power. So discursive power is the power of narrative. It's the control of narratives, and we see both Avasarala and Marco trying to exercise this kind of power. Avasarala, we just talked about this, wants to promote empathy and shift the burden of guilt onto Marco. Although, again, this raises another question, which is, is Marco able to censor the information that Belters get or not? Like, I'm still confused about what the information regime is in The Expanse in that sense. So it's a little puzzling. But Marco, by the way, also is trying to control the narrative because he wants everyone to think that Philip did not cold-blood murder Johan, but rather was putting down an insubordinate junior officer. And indeed, that winds up affecting everything that happens on series, because even though Philip knows that he's guilty, everyone is dealing with him like, wait, you did the right thing. What's the problem? And so these are sorts of the IR elements that I saw in the episode. Although I think it's especially interested that that specific storyline is also interesting as a propaganda tool or, or, you know, a control, a narrative, which is that it teaches a lesson about insubordination. Yes. 
So it's a doubly effective false narrative, which is it absolves Philip of his culpability, but also it's just, and hey, we're trying to build discipline within the Free Navy, which was an episode, which was a problem last season as well. And, well, I mean, unless, who are they trying to teach discipline to, right? (laughs) Like, this is an interesting thing that Marco thinks that this is going to work. It's it's clear that it needs to happen. But belters are the definition of, you know, soldiers of the weapons of the week, (laughs) right? Yeah. Like, that is what they have been doing for generations. And so to sort of expect, like, all of a sudden, they're going to, like, fall into, like, whatever made-up ranks, like, Marco. Right, that you're suddenly going to see a a sort of rational Weberian bureaucracy, (laughs) as it were. That is unlikely to happen. I agree. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But this leads to the next important question to ask, Anna. Uh, Anna? Dan? Did you find a way to critique the problems of capitalism in this episode? Dan? I did. <laughs> I did. Today, I'm not going to rant about capitalism per se so much as unjust labor practices, um, which is something that this show has traditionally taken a great interest in and I think usually fallen down on the right side. Mm-hmm. You know, when I used to talk about the show, and, and this is one of the things I think we talked about right away, uh, is it's the first show that I remember, first primetime big budget show that's ever been about a union, <laughs> right? <laughs> Yes. Or at least it, early on about a union. Right. I guess you could say The Wire also had a, had a season about about a union. But they first drew you in with all the drug narratives. So. Right. so anyway, so what I've always loved about The Expanse is that right from the get-go, it's about a class struggle. Here, I just want to get to Amos saying they should be paid for the work that they're doing. <laughs> yes! Yes, they should be paid for the work that they're doing. It's extremely dangerous. And as we kept sort of hinting at, to get paid for this work does not make you a mercenary. Right? right? Like, mercenaries are bad. Mm-hmm. But mercenaries are mercenary because they'll work for anyone. Right. And that is not the recipe. So, all right, I'm going to push back a little bit on you on this one, which is to say, I understand what you're saying. But I think the Rossi crew is getting paid. It's that what Amos wanted, first of all, Amos does have, in some ways, the mindset of a mercenary, much more so than any of the other characters on the roster. But he knows that, and he uses Naomi as his moral That's compass. true. But what he asked both the first episode and this episode is not about getting paid. It's about getting paid more for, like, per, okay, per kill. Yes. But per, <laughs> they sh- they sh- per belt, <laughs> like, per free Navy kill that they get. And that's a little mercenary-like is all I'm saying. I mean, he's wanting- a little mercenary, but, th- but this particularly dangerous yes. mission- they, I think Hazard pays in order. I, there, I agree with you. Totally fair. I think he deserves a bonus. And so that, yes, I, I, that's a fair point. Yes. The government conscripting or commandeering private vessels is something that happens in war. Uh, that people get paid for that. Right. You know? Like, it's not like the government just comes in and is like, oh, you know, we're going to take your ship. It, it usually, and usually, you know, private interests are happy to do that because it develops a relationship. Yep. Uh, anyway, I think that that is just my stance on the labor practices in this episode. <laughs> and in general, you know, people should get paid. Yeah. That's I you know what? I'm as someone who's still a bigger fan of capitalism than you, I still agree with that. That's a good point. It's yeah. a way in which capitalism can actually be sustainable. So I I'm down with that. All right. I believe it's now time to talk about our themes on from the show. Themes, Dan. Let's talk about themes. All right. So my theme, and I, I, this is interesting because I think in some ways we flipped on this one. You're the, you have the IR theme. I have the the more English uh, theme. English major, English major theme, theme, even though I was a history major. Yes, exactly. Yes, fair <laughs> enough. 
But my theme is guilt. You give a really good guilt trip. I practice a lot when I'm alone. So, Anna, I actually really loved that exchange. It was my favorite exchange in the entire episode because I practice it a lot when I'm alone. Points out Avasarala is fully aware of the ways in which she has sinned, I guess would be the way to put it, um, yeah. and the ways in which she cannot imagine the loss that, that is in some ways on her shoulders. But there is a lot of guilt in this episode. There's Kara's guilt at killing the baby dragon bird. There is Naomi, who clearly is queasy at best about the fact that they are going after Belters and is not happy at all that they're going to be killed because it, that was one of the clear implications of uh, the Rossi's mission this time. Even Marco, I think feels a little bit of guilt about what's happening to Philip. Maybe he's feigning it, but he actually does seem very disturbed, you know, like, like uncertain. Listeners, I am making faces. Yes, you at are. Name. I know. I know. I'm, I'm, I think he's disappointed because Philip's not turning out how he wants him. To. That's, that's, I think on the whole true, but let me just say, this is where I will give some credit to Keanu Alexander. I think there is a slight, slight shade of guilt in terms of of how philip is turning out and of course as i said avasarala you know who literally has the weight of the world well not literally but like has the weight of humanity on her shoulders right anna what about you all right well yes i have the ir-ish theme Mm -hmm. this week and it is the fragility of alliances you know i never thought i'd see the day i'd be delivering mickey munitions to a privateer in the belt it feels kind of nice, huh? Everyone being on the same side for once. One of the things I love about that particular line is that I have no idea who said it. <laughs> it's not clear. And I think that sort of fits in with what I think the theme is, which is that alliances are really slippery mm. and, and hard, to, hard to put down and they change all the time. And alliances change and are broken and shift a lot during wartime, especially, mm-hmm. right? In examples, uh, there's Leon in the Golden Bough, like flipping back and forth, it seems like. There's the kind of delicate operation of bringing Clarissa into the Rossi fold mm. and what the ramifications of that are. Like if you bring Clarissa in, Naomi gets a little pushed out, right? Yeah. Like what's what's going to happen mm. there? Uh, there's Philip's inability to sustain intimate bonds at all, <laughs> like <laughs> apparently. To be fair, because his dad is an asshole, but, you know, yes. Because his dad's a a, a, a psychopath. Yeah. It's interesting to me. I think this might... Well, the showmakers have made a choice here, because in the books, he kills kind of a random security guard. Oh, Philip does. So to make it his his good friend, Mm -hmm. I think, is underscoring, like, just how um, tenuous these bonds between people that we're watching right now are. And then... What? Sorry, I made a face, uh, listeners. I made a face just because I, I think a, the other way to, to to look at that is that it's a way that the, the show can demonstrate just how fucked up Philip is. In other words, killing a random security well, guard is I a problem. Gonna, I guess like, I was going to say, yeah. okay, let me uh, retract and restate, okay. um, which is that the, the bonds between people can be fragile, mm-hmm. yeah. right? And... That's one reason why we admire the crew of the Rossi so much, right? Is because they do the work of intimacy. Mm -hmm. They do the work of maintaining those bonds, right? (laughs) With Philip and Marco, there's, you know, he's, again, he's basically building a a little junior Marco and right down to being a psychopath. And he's, it's no surprise that he would lash out. 
to some. So, right? Anna, there's a there's a term that George Shultz, when he was Secretary of State, used that a lot of like foreign policy people like to talk about, and the term is called gardening. And the idea is that when you are dealing with allies. Sometimes you're going to do things where you disagree, but one of the ways you minimize the damage or blowback from that is to loop them in and early, to consult with them, you know, to make mm-hmm. sure that you are you are tending to the relationship so that weeds don't grow up. And I think that the IR, just as you say, the emotional work, the crew of the Rossi does gardening. Holden actually does some gardening. Mm-hmm. That's a good way of, yeah. Yeah. And you and I have discussed before the ways that uh, IR actually translates into relationship, you know, issues as yes. well. And then, of course, there's much more explicitly IR, which is Avasarala mm-hmm. emotionally manipulating belters into into feeling bad for inners, yeah. I guess. Although, again, the biggest leap of uh, of logic in this entire episode has nothing to do with their selective portrayal of gravity, mm-hmm. which I'm starting to notice. <laughs> like, they do this thing where, like, there's the detail of the grav boots. Right on the floor like you always see the little red light yeah. on the back of people's boots but Avasarala pours herself a drink hmm. which you know in the books again i'm guess i'm just really conscious because i'm you know reading the, the the last book right now everyone drinks out of bulbs all the time because you have to because in low g you're gonna have trouble with liquid that's a fair point you yes know? so hmm. that's a good point anyway moving on i oh oh dan <laughs> Bing, bang, bang. It's the last of the asteroids. <laughs> it's the debris field where we talk about the things we didn't already talk about. Dan, what do you got? Oh, I have a couple of things. First of all, I don't know. Like, I'm trying to remember in previous seasons, there was not a lot of Bobby and Amos time together. I mean, there was a little bit, but I don't think it was much. I want more Bobby and Amos. Bobby calls Amos. Let me this way. As you said, Amos gives diminutive nicknames to women. Bobby calls Amos at various times during this episode beautiful and peewee, which I, I found just adorable. And, you know, I'm hoping there's going to be more more interactions between the two of them throughout the rest of the season. Another small thing I liked. This wasn't that visible, but it was clear. You see the OPA logo both in the series holding cell that Philip is in and also I think Walker has it. Um, on his uniform and it it was just sort of a nice touch to remind everyone that it's not like the free navy sprang up from nowhere that like there was a structure before that and maybe people will be regretting that that structure is going away and and of course i like when we see the opa logo because it's a callback to the old school anarchy logo that i used to put on t-shirts back there you go so this is a rhetorical trope. Does Rosenfeld think the Free Navy owes anyone? Because this is the second episode in a row where Rosenfeld says, we don't owe X anything. But I'm like, who does Rosenfeld think the Free Navy owes? I'm just sort of curious. Like, I, w- I hope on the next episode, Rosenfeld at one point says, yeah, we owe them this. Yeah, yeah, we do. That would just be <laughs> funny. I just have to ask, what would a UN PSA on intimate disease look like? <laughs> So there's a throwaway line that Avasarala says about how, yes, I can rely on my comm staff if I want to see a PSA on intimate disease. I really hope in the extras there is an actual like 30 second ad that they've cut about that. That would be hysterical. I want to know what intimate diseases still exist like 200 years from now because they beat cancer. Like, I mean, (laughs) like space gonorrhea, you know, (laughs) like... (laughs) <laughs> like i don't know i mean i guess we're we're getting into new biomes uh, now yeah. but i also enjoyed that, was... that line i also had the thought that perhaps we would see <laughs> one in the in the bonus bonus features um, footage but speaking of bonus footage actually i should uh, drop this for those who don't already know there are going to be shorts mm-hmm. 
from this season available on the Amazon Prime website. If you do the thing, if you're watching this Amazon Prime, which you have which to, you probably yeah. are. <laughs> yeah, you uh, click up on your remote or you go uh, to the x-ray mm-hmm. section and you'll get some shorts, which include, I'm not spoiling anything because it's in the previews, a fight scene between Bobby and Which is Amos. why I said I want to see more of this. Yes. Again, one of the things I love about The Expanse is the the detail uh, that it does get right. And so I know you're not thrilled with Kara and the Laconia plot so far, but one of the things I loved is she opens up a drawer to grab a drone and you see like scrawled at the top of the drawer, Kara, these are not toys, which was one reason how I knew the character was named Kara, but also it was like, that that was just a nice little character beat in terms of like you know ways of uh, it was just a nice touch and I thought that was really good. Holden is obsessed with the missing Martian ships and you know what that's clearly going to be a thing. I I'm not thrilled with how they've constantly just had him harping about it. I I recognize it's going to be a thing, but like it it's it seemed a little clunky. And I will say it again. I think it's weird that he's the only right. one obsessed right, like, with it because like they're missing like it's like if a few nuclear submarines suddenly like. Yeah disappeared i think people would i will be worried. say it might be that holden like, <laughs> is worried not because of the missing martian ships but because he's the one who knows what that like weird red cloud stuff looks like as they disappear so maybe that's it right, right, um right. but i will finally you know speaking of the missing martian ships i will say it again what the fuck is happening on mars it's very frustrating to not know what's going on on mars i recognize they've as you say anna they're in five different locations so adding a sixth would be hard and maybe they don't want to do an exposition dump, which I totally get. But it's just, it's grating that Mars has been a major player in this show for so long. And now they're just sort of, eh, we're, we're just not going to talk about it. Yeah, I got a couple things. Um, I think I've raised the question before of when does Drummer put on her makeup? <laughs> it's pretty elaborate. It would take, the smoky eye is hard to pull off. And it's hard to pull off and it's hard to apply. I think, Dan, if you just Google smoky eye tutorial, you will see that hours, really? hours have been spent trying to figure out how to teach people to do a proper wow, smoky eye. Okay. So perhaps it's nanobots. <laughs> all I know is it works on Kara G. That's all I'm saying. It yeah. does work. And speaking of other nice touches, I loved Vassarella's mm. choker. I think she might have worn, worn more than one. It might be just her look mm. right now. And then... Dan, you know I don't like children. <laughs> so this has been a kind of tough uh, couple episodes for me. Because there have been um, kids in the Laconia episode part. Yeah. There have been, yeah, been children involved. And I, I just think that maybe bad child actors should be used as a mathematical constant, oh. Dan. I think that they're just always present. Um, you know what? That's not like true. And I, I can even give an example of that when we were uh, Black Widow, uh, the movie. the Ever Anderson, who played, All right. who played young Natasha, was very good in that. I'm going to push back on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm kind yeah. of kidding. It's mostly just an excuse for me to talk about. There we go. Children. Okay, fair so, enough. This, let's move on. Uh, we are going to not talk about anything else but The Expanse for right, a while. For at least another month. At least another month. But we want to let people know that other shows exist. Uh, what what are you watching? What are you looking forward to in sci-fi these days? So there are two things that I am looking forward to, which we might talk about, you know, in, in future episodes. Uh, one is a pretty big budget, apparently, movie that's going to come out on Netflix called Don't Look Up, which is Adam McKay, who is uh, the director of Anchorman and The Big Short and Vice. And it has... To say all-star cast does not quite do it justice, as I believe it stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence, Meryl Streep, Jonah Hill, 
Kate Blanchett, Timothy Chalamet. You know, it's a minor cast. Yeah, it's a pretty decent cast. And it's clearly supposed to be a satire about, in some ways, the same plot of The Last Policeman, which is a comet is going to strike Earth, but it, it seems like the U.S. administration is just going to pretend like, no, it's not. So hopefully mm-hmm. that'll be that'll be good. And then also another thing on Netflix, the trailer was interesting on this one, uh, The Silent Sea, which is a South Korean drama about a team investigating a moon base uh, filled with all sorts of classified secrets. You know what? I'm beginning to stand South Korean sci-fi. I, I just, I, I think I like it. And I'm unstanding the word stand, Dan. We've we've used I it a apologize lot in this particular that. episode. And I think we've I think we have used our allotment Very of stands. Enough. All right, Anna, what about you? I will tell a quick story about stands, which is that when I first heard it, I was working at MTV mm-hmm. and I assumed it was some kind of play on the nations that end with stan. <laughs> like Pakistan. Kazakhstan, yeah. <laughs> In Kazakhstan, I I did couldn't I got from the context that people were talking about being big fans right. of something, but I was kind of like I wonder if it's religious. <laughs> Are they saying like it's like they're like a they're like a mu- Muslim terrorist for mm-hmm. this thing? You know, like I, I don't know. And then I looked it up, and yeah, it's the Eminem song. <laughs> anyway, we've used up our allotment of stands. We're going to think of something else for right. the next episode. But moving on to the things I'm looking forward to, Dan, there's apparently a Matrix sequel. I don't know if you're no, no, about I haven't known about this. But That's interesting. Okay, that I'm I'll looking look forward to. Yeah. The Station Eleven Ooh, adaptation. I know you love yes, that book. Yes, we might need to do an episode on that. And I will not read the book. We can do kind of trade off. Oh, this will be good. Okay, yes. Mm-hmm. Positions. There is a Doctor Strange movie mm-hmm. coming. Um, I am a, a Benedict Cumberbatch fan. I don't even know if I pronounce his name correctly. Sometimes good. I think of a Bundersnatch Cumberbund <laughs> is actually the one that I think. That sounds like a porn name. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> In my head, it's always Bumbersnatch Cumberbund. Uh, <laughs> so I can't. So I, I worry that I never pronounce his name as it should be. And then Dan. Moonfall. <laughs> Moonfall is coming, Dan. Moonfall. Yes, what looks like, if possibly, the dumbest movie in sci-fi to come out in 2022. Which? I, I, yes, possibly yes, ever. I was going to say, if you're going to have to narrow that down a lot, possibly but, ever. It, it might be for uh, Imiquary. I don't know how we're going to do, like Imrich. Emmer March, maybe that... Th- Emmer March. March. Maybe that'll Immer be March. it. Yes, we've talked yeah, about this. Emmer March. Emmer March yes. Madness. Oh, I like that. Oh, this. Yes. Yes. That's, <laughs> that's. I think, what we're going to have to do. In which we would do a retrospective of Roland Emmerich's. Emmerich's. You know, basically disaster oeuvre, which consists yeah. of, among other things, Independence Day, The Day After Tomorrow, 2012, you know, yeah. you name it. Some of them are Some good. Some of them are good. This one does not This look one looks good. really, really <laughs> dumb. I mean, based on the trailers, it does not look good. It, it looks incredibly stupid. So, yeah. All right. Uh, well, we should close up shop here, Dan. People can find us online. Uh, you are at Dan Dresner. I am at Anna Marie Cox. If you are interested in supporting the show, you can go to patreon.com slash space the nation. Thank you to every single patron out there, especially those of you who have chimed in on the Discord. It is so mm-hmm. much fun to visit there and uh, got lots of good feedback. Occasionally, it's not entirely positive, and I like yes. that too. They know how to tell us things that we need mm-hmm. to hear, Dan. And thank you to Karen, once again, for doing oh, the yes. wonderful sound editing that makes us look much more coherent than at least I am normally. And, you know, of course, most of the money that, all of the money, actually, that that goes into the Patreon uh, basically helps keep Karen and Kibble. Yes. Karen and yes, her puppy, puppy and Kibble. Exactly. 
yes. to each other. All right, and next week we'll be talking about episode three. Until then, Dan. Keep this channel open for more. <laughs>